Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All right, a little drum music, please. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how that ties in with the themes of the day, but uh, I'm sure there are ways anyway. Uh, welcome to our week. We're going to begin, well, we're going to begin where the nation is beginning today with the first set of indictments uh, by Robert Mueller, special counsel uh, looking into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Uh, this one lands fairly close to home. Paul Manafort is a native son of Connecticut, so street or road in New Britain. It's named after his father. Um, he's been uh, called in today, actually turned himself into FBI offices today. Uh, we're going to talk about that, go over the indictment a little bit with two of our guests, and then uh, uh, on a lighter note in the second segment, um, we'll explore the question, are we living through the best World Series ever? Um, we have one or two games before we can dispositively say that, but it's starting to look that way. Even fans of 1975 will have to concede. And then at the end, I'm trying to leave some time for phone calls because, first of all, on Thursday, when I was in trouble, all you phone callers were so great about bailing me out. And I thought, you know, get the callers involved a little bit more. So in the final segment, I'm going to open up the phones. It would be just you and me on the question or on the notion that all this stuff is going to all this stuff being the Mueller probe and, and everything that attends to it is ultimately going to become political again, um, that either President Trump will fire Mueller or he'll issue a lot of preemptive pardons to try to interfere with the uh, efforts to, to flip witnesses. And that ultimately, as a nation, and starting with probably Congress, we'll have to decide what we want to do about it, how we're going to respond. And so I want to find out from you how you think we should respond. All right. So with all that said, uh, in the studio is attorney Stephen Seligman, trial attorney with the Hartford firm of Katz and Seligman, uh, often a legal affairs consultant for us. Uh, joining us by uh, phone is Jeremy Stahl, who writes about politics and sports for Slate. And so, um, so Jeremy, I'm going to start off with, with you. Um, maybe, I mean, I've done a, a poor job of putting today's events into a nutshell, maybe you can just sort of give us a sense uh, of what's in this indictment. I think you've done a pretty good job, Colin. Uh, thanks for having me. I would uh, just say that, uh, you know, the key, there's, there's two key elements to what, what happened today. First is the Manafort uh, and Rick Gates indictment. Paul Manafort was uh, Donald Trump's campaign chief for much of the primaries. He helped guide him through the um, convention process, et cetera. And Rick Gates is a former business associate of him. Before, before the campaign occurred, uh, both of these men worked to help support a pro-Russian Ukrainian uh, party that was actually the party of the, the president of Ukraine at the time, uh, according to this indictment. They allegedly uh, worked on behalf of this party to lobby on their behalf. They allegedly then did not list themselves as foreign agents as required by law. They allegedly then laundered through shell companies overseas millions and millions of dollars that, that Manafort then allegedly uh, used to defraud banks of for additional money uh, in terms of loans. And all of this is just to point to, then they have allegedly lied about it to federal investigators. 
All of this is just to point to the deep connection between the guy who was running the presidential campaign of Donald Trump and serious Russian interests. Uh, that is the big rub of that first indictment. The second big piece of news that happened today is that we learned that George Papadopoulos, this former uh, Trump foreign policy advisor, had pled guilty to lying to investigators about his work on the campaign and connections to Russian officials. He said that he had communications with Russian officials in which they reportedly told him about uh, dirt they had on Hillary Clinton before he was part of the campaign. The uh, plea today says that he was lying when he told investigators this. All right. So, um, Stephen Seligman, if you we didn't know the names in this indictment, if it was just a couple of schmoes uh, getting indicted and we didn't know about any association to the Trump campaign, this wouldn't look different, I, I don't think, from a pretty typical white-collar crime federal indictment, right? The name Trump uh, is not mentioned. Campaigns are not mentioned. This is about tax evasion. It's about failing to register as a foreign agent. It's about 12 different charges. So, Stephen, is, is there anything about this that makes it seem different from just a, a typical one that a U.S. attorney might be bringing? Jeremy had a, has a great piece in today's uh, slate about the painstaking detail of the indictment shows what a solid job uh, Mueller has done. Uh, notwithstanding uh, Jeremy's fine article, uh, I would say that the answer to your question is there is nothing remarkable about this indictment as it relates directly to any claims of impropriety on the part of the Trump campaign. Mm. Uh, and But the, the uh, assembly of a criminal prosecution is a process and not an event. And today is just the opening salvo. And of course, there were, there were several, not only, I mean, Manafort, if, if we start with the notion of the piscatorial ladder going from the small fish up to the bigger fish, uh, Manafort is not a bad sized fish to get on your, on your first, uh, di- uh, first cast. Uh, Manafort and Gates were very, very, very important in, in the campaign. And though Gates is not as well known as Manafort, he actually succeeded Manafort and stuck around the campaign a lot longer than Manafort did. So it's not a bad place to start if you're ruling and you're trying to to ratchet up the pressure, but expressly, uh, while the range of, of alleged criminality in this indictment is breathtaking, and some of the kind of dollar amounts that I'm sure Jeremy and we will get into are, are breathtaking, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, the, the conduct alleged does not even remotely directly implicate uh, the Trump campaign with the collusion with the Russian government. But it's not a bad place to start. Stephen, let me ask you one more question before we go back to Jeremy. Um, uh, we, we obviously, we don't know what happens happened today when Manafort uh, turned himself in. But is this is typically is this a day where conversations would begin between Manafort's defense counsel and an FBI or, or Justice Department authorities? In other words, is this uh, obviously what you're talking about is the notion that having brought all these charges that are essentially unrelated to Trump activities against Manafort, now there's a conversation going on about so-called flipping the witness or what can you give us or what does that conversation start today or is today about much more kind of routine boilerplate you know uh, here's what it takes to get you released back onto the street stuff oh no that that conversation began a long time ago i mean they went into manafort's uh, apartment this summer 
uh, under cover of darkness with the search warrant. I mean, that is very, very heavy-handed uh, mm. investigative technique. So this is this is not exactly a newsflash for Manafort. He has been discussing the facts of life with his lawyer. His and Manafort's lawyer has been discussing the facts of life with Trump's lawyers, Jared Kushner's lawyers, and everybody else up and down the up and down the ladder uh, for quite some time. I think. Probably what what the indictment today shows is that thus far, neither Manafort nor Gates, for all the pressure that has previously been applied to them, has been willing yet to play ball. Mm. Um, So, Jeremy, one thing that could make this a much more complicated scenario, I mean, it's a pretty complicated scenario anyway for a special uh, prosecutor to bring in these two guys and say, here are the the charges against you. Let's keep having a conversation here. What else can we talk about? Um, uh, But uh, that whole notion of flipping somebody like Manafort or Gates gets complicated if, in fact, at some point they are preemptively pardoned without trial or promised a pardon by the president at the end of trials. Anything we know about that whole sort of pardon question mark? I researched this question uh, back uh, earlier this earlier this summer when you know it, it was first leaked that uh, President Trump, according to reports, had been asking uh, officials and and people what his pardon powers precisely were, whether or not he had the power to pardon himself and these associates. And what I found is that there is this, you know, history in both uh, constitutional uh, law from from the founders' statements at the time that the Constitution was written, as well as a general understanding that, you know, there are certain things that you can't do with a pardon. The pardon power is not unlimited. For example, the FBI investigated uh, the President Bill Clinton's pardon of Mark Rich. Um, and the question there was whether or not there could be a bribery claim there. Ultimately, they didn't charge former President Bill Clinton with bribery. But if you were to accept a bribe for a pardon, that would be illegal. And if you were to obstruct justice, if you were to uh, attempt to obstruct justice by issuing a pardon that could say, uh, protect somebody who might incriminate you, that would also potentially be illegal. And either way, uh, based on what, you know, the James Madison and other uh, early founders said at the time, it, it definitely would seem to qualify as a impeachable offense. So, um, Stephen, at the end of this indictment, there is a whole section about asset forfeiture, um, which I think most of us who are just, you know, I mean, lay people um, associate with drug kingpins and things like that. But but I, I, for all I know, with white collar crime, this is a pretty usual thing that, you know, with, I don't know, Bernie Madoff or somebody like that. I mean, do they do they. So at the end, it's like, you know, we'll do this, we'll do that. If we can't take this, we'll take something else. Um, is, is that pretty typical? Is that an unsurprising in a case like this? It is unsurprising. It's certainly when you have money laundering, the 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 money that the launderer makes uh, would be the, the a, a fruit of a criminal enterprise, and therefore would be subject to asset forfeiture. Our jurisprudence, our, our rules, actually about giving people notice that forfeiture will be so will be an additional remedy sought by the government. Uh, have been refined, so now it has to be part of the indictment. You have to put the indictee on notice uh, relatively early of that. But no, the the whole idea of of claiming the government claiming that it is going to seize ill-gotten gains, uh, the fruits of criminal enterprise. There's nothing new to that, uh, and it's not 
It's not unique simply to drug offenses or gun running offenses. Money laundering is a great up example of a situation where, where forfeiture is an appropriate remedy. You really know, accomplished. I'm going to ask both of you this. I'll start with you and Jeremy. But it's it's my, once again, dim-witted layperson impression that this is all moving very fast for a federal investigation. I'm very used to covering very pokey federal investigations where we call up every three months and say anything, and they go, no. Um, you know, they were taking, the grand jury was taking testimony from Manafort's realtor like 10 days ago, and stuff that seems to be uh, connected to that testimony is here in the indictment. I'm just I'm not used to seeing grand jury, juries turn things around so fast. But but I don't know. Is, is that your sense of this, having covered this kind of from the get go? The FBI has been looking into this question of Russian interference since at least last year. Uh, so in that respect, it's sort of been a slow, long going process of investigation. At the same time, everything you just said is true, and uh, not to speculate too much, but the, uh, one possible reason is that uh, Trump has previously, President Trump um, had previously, according to reporting, considered firing uh, special counsel, counsel uh, Robert Mueller, and he's, he already obviously fired uh, FBI Director James Comey. Um, so, you know, Trump has then afterwards said that, no, it wasn't true that he was considering doing this. But, you know, he's got political supporters uh, who have kind of played played the advocate of, of smearing Comey in the press. And as, as late as last Friday, you had uh, a congressman from Arizona saying that uh, Mueller should resign. You had Chris Christie saying that potential conflict of interest meant that Mueller should resign. And this was all in relation to one of the biggest stories that was playing out in the conservative, uh, the world of conservative media last week, this Uranium One connection with Hillary Clinton and this big convoluted story that, you know, potentially could be seen as a way of distracting from these tangible, real criminal charges. And a uh, real criminal plea deal that occurred today, which I think is going to be the biggest news today, and ultimately in the end may end up not being Manafort's indictment, but this this uh, guilty plea by George Papadopoulos to basically obstructing uh, the efforts of the FBI to investigate potential collusion between um, Russia and the Trump campaign. That's what the that's what the plea the plea says. Hmm. occurred and he pled guilty to this um uh, we can circle back to that in a second but Stephen, um you know uh, one thing that i've sort of learned over the over the years of just covering this kind of stuff is that a federal indictment especially like this one in a high profile case it it exists for a bunch of different reasons Uh, and the the obvious reason is kind of informing the indictee what he's being indicted for and uh, but there's also a way in which indictments like this often talk to the world at large uh and i it seemed to me that and once again, I don't find this uncommon, but the depiction of, uh, of Paul Manafort's rather lavish lifestyle, and that word lavish is used in the f- first few paragraphs uh, of the indictment, uh, the sense of like how much money is being thrown around and for what purposes, it seemed to be have a little bit of a public relations quality to it, too. It's, they certainly do. Uh, in terms of the, the, the rapidity of this indictment, mm. uh, I noticed, and I'm just beginning to assimilate this information. There's an awful lot of it in the 31 pages of the indictment. Many of them have to do with with wire transfers, uh, which were uh, uh, 
acts in furtherance of the conspiracy to launder money or to avoid income taxation. And I see that uh, several of these wire transfers for the acquisition of property uh, occurred in November of 2012. Right. So, which, and they're typically not always, but typically there's a five year statute of limitations for many of the offenses alleged in this indictment. It may well be that Mueller was saying, I'm running up against the statute of limitations. So, I've got to indict now in order for the indictment to be timely, in order for me to preserve as many options as possible. So that may be one explanation for why now rather than, Mm -hmm. as is frequently the case, much later. In terms of the lavish lifestyle, I I, I always liked Manafort's ties and suits. He's got a a nice wardrobe. But the amount of money that the Ukrainian government and Viktor Yanukovych and and his associates were paying these people, $18 million, it, it, it is probably not directly relevant to the Trump campaign, though in some ultimate sense. And maybe you wonder, if I'm paying you $18 million, what am I expecting to make from that? I don't pay you a dollar with the expectation of getting a penny. I pay you a penny with the expectation of getting you a dollar. So the kind of money, I mean, you're wondering, what could Manafort do? I mean, this isn't a guy who is selling, uh, has access to... Uh, to oil or natural gas. This is a guy who's an, essentially an American lobbyist, and obviously the payors assumed that they could get value for these $18 million worth of payments. It's a staggering sum of money, and you really have to wonder what they think they can get from that. And I have a feeling that that is a precursor to what many people have suspected, that the real relationship between Trump and the Russians are, are, are monies that he was getting from oligarchs, big monies to bail out uh, some of his business interests. And that, that's, that's at least a harbinger. Yeah. Um, oh, it gets more interesting by the moment. Yeah, clearly, you've been running your career completely the wrong way here. <laughs> you have, um, so, um, so, Jeremy, uh, you were talking about uh, Papadopoulos. Um, I assume one of the reasons that you think that that is potentially a bigger story, typically with these kinds of probes, there, there may be some disparity between what the federal government can prove about what person A, B, or C did on this particular date and the federal government's ability to prove that someone, that same person has impeded an investigation. In other words, if you lie to us, if you provide us with false information, um, that's something that maybe they have kind of very fresh eyes on since they were the us being lied to. Is, Jeremy, is that one of the yeah. reasons that you think the yeah, Papadopoulos yeah. thing is, is sort of rises to that level? Yes. Well, there's there's a part of this Papadopoulos thing where they talk about how, you know, he spoke to FBI officials. He told them that these uh, communications that he had with uh, these connections to Russia had occurred before he had joined the campaign. Mm. He told them that, uh, you know, he had been given uh, information that indicated that there might be uh, dirt that that was available uh, that was acquired uh, regarding emails. Mm-hmm. And but he said that that all occurred before he was even on the campaign, so therefore it didn't have any real relevance. Then he went and deleted his Facebook account that he had had since 2005, and that the uh, guilty plea says contained, you know, evidence of communications that had occurred and the timing of those communications, and and presumably the substance of those communications. Now that is uh, a way to ensnare yourself when you. Uh, lie to federal investigators and bring up very potentially 
uh, damaging criminal criminal charges. And ultimately, it could result in somebody being compelled to uh, potentially become a witness. Jeremy's, the conduct that Jeremy has just recited is the basis for every competent criminal defense lawyer's admonition to his client, don't speak to the government. Mm-hmm. This is the hydra-headed nature of this sort of an investigation, that even if you have done nothing wrong, and that's frequently not the case, but even if you haven't, you're trying to cover up something, you are deleting uh, emails, Facebook accounts, which becomes an in, the independent crime of obstruction of justice or, or evidence tampering, or you make a false statement. And making a false statement to a federal agent in the course of an investigation is in and of itself a crime. And both uh, Papadopoulos and Gates, all three of them, the Papadopoulos, Gates, and uh, Manafort, are all indicted in part for having made false statements during the course of this investigation. Moral of the story, you may be smarter than the FBI, but you're not going to talk your way out of something, which is why rule number one is shut up. And rule number two is if you're going to speak, you must be meticulously honest. And nobody can comply with rule number two, which is why rule number one is rule number one. <laughs> so, Stephen, I, I would assume rule number like minus three or something before you even get to this point is don't email things. I mean, I'm surprised in this indictment about the number of talking points that ma- amount to at minimum obfuscation that, um, that, that Manafort and Gates appear to have emailed to various people. I mean, I don't know. Do people just never learn this lesson? Don't email things? If you if you're trying to create the notion that you are engaged in innocent conduct, mm-hmm. then you comport yourself like an innocent person. Uh, but if if you're engaged in criminal conduct, you ought to be a lot more discreet. Um, so as we go ahead on this, um, uh, so Jeremy, assuming that there's no pardon, I, I assume what will happen now, maybe you can both talk about this, but Jeremy, you can start. What do we anticipate happening next? In other words, Manafort and Gates, I assume, are at some kind of deal-making, bargaining stage with the federal government. Stephen thinks that may have started a while ago. Um, Papadopoulos, I, I don't know where he goes next. He's already pleaded guilty. I mean, what are you as a journalist watching for next? I think I'm watching what uh, what happens with Manafort, certainly, and what happens with any potential plea deal there. In the Papadopoulos guilty plea, he talks about uh, receiving this message informing him of the potential for damaging information, correct? Then he forwards that. Um, he Shortly after that, he messages, you know, a, I think the person is listed as a high-ranking campaign official or a supervising campaign official, unnamed people, saying uh, that, you know, uh, the people that he has been talking to um, are interested in potential cooperation. And I think he uses the word, quote-unquote, cooperation. So the fact that those two officials uh, that are in that guilty plea remain unnamed indicates to me that there is another shoot-a-drop surrounding Papadopoulos, and it is directly related to officials in the Trump campaign and what they may have known and when they may have known it about uh, this whole email hack um, and any potential damaging emails that the Russians may have had. 
you know, I may be hallucinating this, but I have this recollection that somewhere in the tranche of documents turned over to the congressional um, oversight committees uh, is some kind of set of correspondences involving Papadopoulos where he's trying to set up a face-to-face between Trump himself and some uh, Russian people, uh, and that it's Manafort and Gates who put the kibosh on that and say, somebody go tell him that that's not going to happen. Trump is not going to meet with any Russians uh, face-to-face. Um, so there's I a way. That- yeah, go ahead. I believe the Post reported on that, yes, that you're you're correct. Uh, So, I mean, uh, it all ties together this way. And at least on that one occasion, uh, Stephen Seligman, we see Manafort and Gates uh, acting somewhat uh, prudently. As I mean, I assume, Stephen, that it'll be a long time before we know what sorts of conversations have transpired between Manafort and Gates's people and Mueller's people, right? That this is just something that will happen without any public understanding of what's going on? Sure. I mean, I think it's fair to infer, based on Papadopoulos having entered into a guilty plea, that he is clearly a cooperating witness. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to infer... Uh, from today's indictment of Manafort and Gates, that they are not at this point cooperating witnesses, which is why uh, why this indi- why the Mueller has indicted them to to ratchet up the pressure. Uh, you know what it's like now. I don't know whether Paul Manafort or Richard Gates had ever been fingerprinted before, whether they had ever been transported by FBI from the FBI field office to the United States District Courthouse for the District of Columbia. It's a very sobering experience. And certainly uh, the first of many that they're going to go through. And obviously that puts on the agenda what kinds of promises, if any, uh, has Trump made uh, implicitly or explicitly to pardon uh, these guys, to fire Mueller. I wonder whether Mueller is going to indict Tony Podesta. Uh, if, If I were trying to feather my nest and keep my job as independent counsel, and if I felt I had an indictable offense against the Democrats for something, now would be the time to do that. I was almost thinking this morning that it was going to be Podesta who was the indictee. Uh, I, I don't know whether Mueller is that political in that sense, and whether, or whether there's any indictable case against Tony Podesta. Uh, I also certainly, uh, Trump has a greater potential than any other occupant of the White House ever to pardon quickly people who get indicted by Mueller. And I do not see, and you and Jeremy are infinitely more astute politically than I, I don't see the Congress rising up to impeach him. These are the times in which we are living. Right. We're going to talk about that with you, the callers, uh, in the final segment today. I want to thank Stephen Seligman, a trial attorney with the Hartford firm of Katz and Seligman with uh, fees starting well below $18 million. (laughs) Uh, And uh, Jeremy Stahl writes about politics and sports for Slate. Uh, We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about something happier, the World Series. All right. On this segment, what should you do to keep your heart in good health? Well, you should probably take a baby aspirin every day, limit your consumption of red meat. And according to Michael Bowman, staff writer for The Ringer, don't watch the World Series because you might have a heart attack. Um, And Michael Bowman uh, now joins us uh, to uh, expand uh, on that theme. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. And I hope your heart is in reasonably good shape uh, this morning. 
Oh, my heart's fine. Those are actually the words of Carlos Correa, Astros. Oh, that's right. So his, his heart's probably in even better shape than anybody who's listening, and he's still having trouble with this series. Right. He takes good care of himself. So I, I, maybe we can just begin it at the level of hyperbole and work ourselves down the ladder back to earth. But, I mean, people are really starting to talk about this series uh, at, at three and two as potentially the greatest World Series ever, if that's if it means moments of incredible drama, the improbable happening, and two incredibly even match, evenly matched teams who almost seem to be mirroring each other's behavior in, in weird ways at times. I mean, how does that claim strike you right now? I think it's I think that's a lot, uh, particularly before the series is over. Not knowing that it's going to go seven games, I think it's an important. Uh, thing that this series would have to do in order to be mentioned, you know, alongside 1924, 1991. I'd probably pick one of those two as uh, the greatest World Series ever. But, I mean, this has been great. And we didn't have a very good pennant race. Uh, you know, the playoff, the 10 playoff spots were pretty much locked up by mid-September. And the flip side of that is we got a bunch of really good teams in the playoffs. And I think right now these look like the two best and they've been playing a, a, you know, if not the greatest ever series, then certainly a really, really entertaining one for people. We have some people who listen to public radio who don't follow sports at all. So uh, we should explain that uh, last night uh, the Astros uh, won the game 13, 12 in a game that took 10 innings to play five hours and 17 minutes um, and not even the first extra innings game of this World Series. Um, so maybe we can uh, talk a little bit about that 13-12 to 12 score. It's an unusually high score for a World Series game, but it's part of a theme that's emerging here, which has to do with the ball that's being used, the this, this slippery ball, the slime ball, whatever we want to call it. Uh, uh, Michael, help people understand what's being said here. There, there's a claim that the balls being used in the postseason are not the same balls that were used in the regular season. Right, and this is not anything unusual for MLB. They've been dogging, you know, there was a record for home runs set uh, this year, and some of that's players getting bigger and stronger. Some of that is the way that swing mechanics are taught has changed over the past few years. But also there's some pretty compelling evidence that the composition of the ball has changed. And uh, one of the most outspoken voices among players uh, in support of that theory was Justin Verlander, the Astros ace, and uh, he's – uh, one of player, one of several players and coaches who spoke at Sports Illustrated's Tom Verducci uh, in an article that ran yesterday, saying that the surface composition now of the ball is different in the playoffs than it was in the regular season. So, uh, the way you, you know, you grip a baseball, you uh, particularly breaking pitches, particularly sliders, uh, the ability to actually grip the baseball is important. And the uh, the contention being made is. So every Major League Baseball comes out of the factory with glossy leather, and you have to rub it with this mud This is, you know, that comes out of the Delaware River uh, to take that gloss off to make it easier to handle. And even after that, they're saying this ball is still harder to grip than usual. And with the minute differences in stress and finger pressure of, of uh, location of the fingers from one pitch to another, this is apparently having a huge effect. You know, we saw Clayton Kershaw last night, who might be the best pitcher ever, whose best pitch is probably a slider, uh, give up six runs in four and two-thirds innings. And the Astros closer, Ken Giles, is a big slider, uh, fastball slider guy. He has allowed um, he's allowed runs in six of his seven appearances so far this postseason. Uh, it's been pretty much uh, demoted from the closer role. Astro, Astros manager A.J. Hinch uh, doesn't trust him anymore, and the list goes on and on. So 
you know, I think the theory itself is is plausible. I don't know how compelling any particular piece of that, uh, anecdotal evidence is, but we've seen Major League Baseball tinker with the with the ball before, and so it wouldn't shock me if they're doing it again. Right. So, um, in fact, uh, the players have gotten very interested in all this. I think the Astros were even doing kind of blind testing uh, out in the bullpen. You know, having one of the pitchers sort of say, oh, "Okay, which one of these is from this from the these the playoffs? This, which which one of the balls is from the regular season?" The pitchers were able to figure that out. I mean, I think they're in some ways they're very concerned about this because obviously, if you can't throw one of your important pitches effectively, if your slider is not in fact sliding but appearing as it did last night once or twice, I think Joe Buck said it almost seemed to back up, uh, which obviously physically a slider probably can't do. But if it's not mm-hmm. not moving enough to actually be a legitimate slider, it's going to sit there begging to be hit. Um, so this is not a small concern for pitchers. I mean, they can get, maybe get really neurotic about this stuff, but it's real in their minds. Yeah, and we saw this, you know, I talked about Kershaw's slider. The hit that broke uh, the game open last night it was a three-run home run by Yuli Gurriel of the Astros. They hit off a slider by Kershaw that just didn't move. Like, it's one of the worst sliders I've ever seen in Major League Baseball, and it's just not what you'd expect from Kershaw. So maybe there's some, there is something to, to the ball. Maybe he just didn't get around the pitch. You know, who knows? But it's, it's out there now. So even if, it's, even there's, if there's absolutely nothing to this, everybody's going to be thinking about it. We're talking to Michael Bauman, a staff writer for The Ringer. So, uh, Michael, there's so many other things to enjoy about this World Series when we're not being paranoid about the baseball itself. Um, last night, as has been the case often during the course of this season, um, this uh, gentleman, Mr. Altuve, who, you know, I mean, you see a picture of him with the other Astros, and it really looks like some kid from Little League or something has wandered in there to meet some of his baseball idols. He's uh, very, very small in stature. Uh, and, I mean, last night, as is his want, he just powered, uh, I think it was 7-4 at the time, and he powered a three-run homer to tie the game, just, you know, screaming out of the stadium uh, in, in, into center field. I mean, this is some of the fun of this, right? I mean, if, if particularly to see somebody who, who physically doesn't look like he's going to be a power hitter do this stuff. Yeah, and well, I mean Altuve is short, but if you see him in street clothes, he is not small. He's about five foot six. He's built like an NFL running back. He mm. is absolutely jacked. And so is the Astros have another infielder like this, Alex Bregman, who's about five eight, five nine, also really muscular. And both of those guys uh, came up with key hits. Altuve, uh, when he came up with the Astros, he was about a twenty one year old uh, on a team that lost one hundred and five games three years in a row, and was just sort of a slap and run hitter. He's very fast. He's very good at putting the bat on the ball. He didn't walk that much, but he's incrementally improved his game to the point where he's probably one of the three best position players in baseball. And just there's uh, not only is he a great player, not only is he a, he's a very aggressive player. He takes the action of the pitchers to the defense in a way that you don't really see a lot this, you know, in this day and age. And he plays, you know, it's, it's fun to see a little guy run, you know, just to, to put that out there, but also he plays with, you know, a very, he's a very charismatic player. He, he smiles a lot. He's jumping up and down a lot. He has great chemistry with his double play partner, Carlos Correa, who just for added comedic value is about 11 inches taller than he is. So it's he's you know I, I see a lot of him living in Houston covering the Astros a lot. Uh, he might be my favorite player to watch in Major League Baseball right now, and he's been probably the breakout star of this postseason. Yeah, certainly these days when he gets up in these key situations, the the Houston crowd, if it's a home game, is chanting MVP, uh, not mm-hmm. without good reason. So it, it seems as though one of the things that might come out of all of this 
excitement over how exciting these games are and, and how well-matched the teams are uh, is maybe some good feelings that might drown out a little bit some bad feelings that, that started in Game 3 where the Astros' third baseman uh, ha- having homered uh, after uh, off of an Asian pitcher uh, for the Dodgers, then kind of uh, he in the dugout, what he kind of uses his fingers to pull back his eyes into this kind of uh, preposterous squint uh, and uh, put a problem in the lap of Commissioner uh, Rob Manfred. Explain um, how that played out, Michael. Yeah, uh, it played out about how you'd expect. Uh, you know, Yuli Gurriel is a Cuban Ameri- or a Cuban uh, import. He played a year in Japan in 2014. Came over. Uh, made his debut. Uh, he's 33 years old, so he's a little bit of a, a latecomer to Major League Baseball, and he's been having an excellent playoffs. Just in that in that single game, he uh, he homered. He started a key double play, and then you know he gets caught on camera doing that. And there's some complexity. You know, this is not. You know, he he didn't grow up in a in American society. The word he used is apparently not seen as 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 offensive in uh, Latin American communities. But at the same time, like he's a grown up, he's been over here for a while. He should know better. And you know, he seemed apologetic. And the obvious thing to do, you know, Major League Baseball suspended players for racist remarks, for homophobic remarks, for a game or two during the regular season. And on the biggest stage, and particularly considering how likable both of these teams are, how well the postseason had been going, how dramatic it had been, how easy both of these teams were to root for, this was just a huge black eye for baseball. And so Rob Manfred could have come come out there. Rob Manfred, the, being the commissioner of baseball, could have imposed a one-game suspension on him during the uh, during the World Series. Like nobody's calling for him to be banned forever. Just some appropriate punishment for doing something deeply in it, you know, deeply offensive and that honestly transcends the sport. But Manfred pushed a suspension to five games at the beginning of next season uh, to um, uh, because he didn't want to unfairly penalize the Astros, which just, you know, it sends the message that, yeah, we don't want players to be racist, but that's not as important as, uh, as the World Series. And that's just not true. And it's just a, a really disappointing message to send. So, you know, I think that that Guriel is, for, by all intents, you know, by all accounts, is is uh, apologetic. The pitcher he was he was mocking you, Darvish, said he wants to move on, um, and we could move on if he had actually been imposed some actual punishment. But instead, this is going to keep dragging on. We're going to keep thinking about this every time he comes, you know, comes to the plate for the rest of what's otherwise been a really fun World Series. So it's just. Uh, you know, obviously a shame that he did it and a shame that Major League Baseball, you know, didn't come down harder on him. So in a way, it's almost impossible to imagine what else could happen in Game 6. I mean, all these incredible things keep happening. I don't know whether I misread this. I thought I read in some of the coverage today that last night there were 28 hits, which is the same number of swings and misses that took place in the entire game. I don't see how that can be possible in a in a 10-inning game. But, I mean, it, it, one of the things that's been nice about this for baseball, baseball's obviously, like all sports, always wondering what's going to happen to its audience. Uh, are people going to care about it as much? One of the big complaints,
complaints over this season, almost every season recently, is the games take too long. There have been a lot of conversations about what to do about that. I mean, Gary Sanchez of the Yankees can't go more than you know a few pitches without going out to the mound and talking to his pitcher again. Um, but people don't mind if it's a five-hour and 17-minute game, if it's really as interesting and exciting as this has been. So I assume heading into game six, the one thing that we could probably expect is something that we can't possibly expect or predict or talk about right now, Michael Bauman. Yeah, sure. And I think the the big narrative uh, going into game six is the Astros have a chance to close it out in Los Angeles, and on the mound will be will be Verlander, who has pitched in two World Series for Detroit, uh, came to the Astros at the end of, of August, around the same time as Hurricane Harvey, and was you know has been about as good as you can be. Uh, the Astros haven't um, haven't lost a game that he's pitched since he came over two months ago. Uh, so he'll be pitching for his first World Series ring, and this is somebody who's on a Hall of Fame track, who's come close, who's won an MVP award, who's won a Cy Young award, and this is the last thing he needs to really validate his career, and he'll have a chance to, to do it in Los Angeles as one of the biggest stars in Major League Baseball. But, you know, nothing, nothing in this World Series has been that easy so far. The last time he started, uh, he wound up leaving the game down 3-1, and uh, the game wound up finishing with, I think, five extra inning home runs to set a major league record. So who knows what's going to happen. Right. So last look night, for that, but I wouldn't necessarily expect it. Last night on paper looked like a great pitcher's duel, too. We know how that turned out. Uh, Michael Bauman from The Ringer, thanks so much for joining us. We're going to take a break now, and then it's going to be me and you guys and your phone calls. We're going to swing back away from the World Series and go back to the first topic. Uh, and if you want to be on the air, it would be a good idea to start calling maybe right now and get on the board. 860 860- I want to talk a little bit about one of the things that Stephen Seligman was alluding to, which is what happens if this process doesn't unfold in an orderly way. If President Trump tries to fire Robert Mueller if, uh, or have someone fire him, or if he begins to use preemptive pardons or try to use them in a way that would inhibit testimony, how do we deal with this as a political culture? 860-275-7266. Give us a call. It seems like this year's indictments are all on this slippery new paper. It's hard to get a grip on it. Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is rooting for the Marlins. Part of Bill Curry was played by Brad Peacock. On tomorrow's show, meet the Frankenstein you never knew. And now, back to Colin. All right, so we have a little bit less than 10 minutes left. It's just me and you. I have no guest book for this time, partly because... It was so much fun uh, on Thursday when we couldn't get our guest on the air. I really did find that fun, by the way, um, to talk to you. And so many people called up with interesting things to say. I couldn't even get them all on the air. So if you want to call up now, the number is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. And, and here's what I was hoping we could talk a little bit about, because to me, as I watch today's events unfold, obviously I watch them with keen interest. I like reading lengthy federal indictments, believe it or not. Um, and so as we watch the indi- indictments uh, of Manafort and Gates come in and also the uh, Papadopoulos uh, guilty plea, um, you know, there's a sense in which we're watching a process unfold. And it's a process, although which although it's pretty exotic, we're kind of familiar with it. We basically understand from the past how these things happen. There's a procedure that's taught in law schools for dealing with these things uh, and taught in political science classes. The problem is that we just don't 
as I think Stephen Seligman said, we don't necessarily live in that period of history right now. We live in a very different period of history where unpredictable things happen. And one of the things that President Trump has shown is that he himself is A, not familiar with standard procedures and B, disinclined to honor them anyway. So I find myself wondering what happens if as I, I had sort of thought earlier in this process that Donald Trump would fire Robert Mueller or attempt to fire him. I think he couldn't fire him on his own. He would have to get someone else to do it. Um, he might have to fire other people in order to get to the person who would be willing to do this for him, kind of a, a la Nixon uh, and the famous massacre. Um, that that would happen or now. I mean, if you if you know anything about these kinds of federal prosecutions, what happened today with Manafort and Gates is basically the the first move. You know, it's just moving one pawn, one square forward, or I guess in this case, two pawns, one square forward each. It's the beginning of a series of conversations, and those conversations have to do with what those pawns are willing to give up, cough up, uh, in order to help themselves. Either um, not get prison terms, not get full prosecutions. Uh, if their crimes are so bad as to warrant prosecutions, at least to get to stay someplace like Danbury, Connecticut, instead of in Indiana or something like that. I mean, there are all kinds of things that can be you know, put into play. But for those things to be put into play, the people have to be actually afraid that something bad is going to happen to them. If they've been preemptively pardoned by the president, uh, you can't negotiate with them. And so I kind of wonder about that. You know, uh, I wonder... What happens? I mean, I kind of also, well, actually, I'll say a little bit more about this after I talk to Brian. Our number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Hi, Brian. Hey, Colin. How are you today? Good. Uh, I just wanted to suggest that, uh, you know, pardons given out by president seems to be more and more routine and for very almost vacuous reasons. The... Uh, the idea of Obama giving out a pardon, if he feels it's warranted, should be no less uh, criticized than those given out by previous presidents. I don't uh, know how you feel about that. Well, I mean, look, pardons usually take most pardons following follow a very typical course, which is, first of all, they are pardons for crimes in which a sentence is already imposed. Sometimes the person's in prison. Sometimes the person's awaiting prison. It's unusual, not unprecedented, because obviously you had Ford pardoning Nixon. But it's unusual to pardon somebody who hasn't been charged with anything. It's unusual to pardon somebody who hasn't been through that process. I'm, some of maybe George H.W. Bush's pardons in Iran-Contra may have gone to people who weren't, weren't all the way through the process. But that's unusual, and it falls into a different category, even than pardoning, let's say, Mark Rich or somebody like that. You're now talking about pardoning somebody who is part of a process that's unfolding, a process that might ultimately implicate other people. And so, I mean, you know, if you pardon that kind of person as opposed to the people who typically are pardoned often at the very end uh, 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 of a presidency, uh, you'll see a wave of pardons if the president is about to leave office. If you're pardoning somebody who's material to an existing investigation, it seems to me you're doing something different uh, than if you're just pardoning a whole bunch of people uh, as you get ready to leave office. Here's uh, Steve in Woodbury. Hi, Steve. You're on the air. Hi, Steve. Hello? Hi, you're on the air. Wow. Uh, I was just saying uh, to whoever it was that answered the phone that uh, I think we could really use somebody like Sam Irvin from the Watergate hearings. Uh, yeah, he was a Democrat, but he was... Uh, highly thought of. He knew his stuff. He was uh, uh, knew the Constitution, and uh, just didn't brook uh, fools and uh, 
the kind of stuff that we seem to have today. Uh, wish we had him around. Well, not only did he know the Constitution, but he famously carried a well-worn copy of it in his uh, suit pocket at all times um, in case he needed to consult with this document that he knew so well. Well, th- this gives me an opportunity to say the other thing that I wanted to say, which is that, um, and Yasha Monk has a terrific piece about this in Slate today saying essentially the same thing, which is that, I, first of all, I hope that communications are already going on between the leaders of Congress and the White House. Um, uh, I know Chuck Schumer has already said something publicly, but Chuck Schumer isn't really in a good position to uh, affect the course of, uh, of what happens over the next uh, years or, or even months. Um, people like Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan have much more power. And I hope that they are saying, maybe through back channels to the White House, if you fire Mueller, all bets are off. We can't protect you. We will regard that as something approaching a constitutional crisis, and we will have to act accordingly. And similarly, you can't pardon people who are material to Mueller's investigation early in the investigation before the process has unfolded. You can't pardon people uh, as a way of securing their cooperation or interfering with Robert Mueller's uh, ability to secure their cooperation. You can't do that. If you do that, we will. it will necessitate our acting. This will no longer be a situation where as uh, fellow Republicans, uh, you know, we, we, we can hold you harmless from this. Uh, expect some kind of significant impeachment effort. Expect some kind of really substantial pushback uh, that you should be very afraid of from Congress if you do that. I hope that conversation has gone on because you need to have that conversation now, not when he does something provocative. And it's almost a sure, a sureness, a certainty that he will, he will do something provocative. He's going to do something to try to materially interfere with this process or make it difficult for Mueller to do what a special prosecutor typically does. And, and everybody who's connected to this, but particularly the people who run Congress, should already know in their hearts what they're going to do when that gets done. I just hope I hope the communications happen. If it hasn't happened, I hope it happens soon. And if it doesn't happen, I hope still that these people who are going to be, their consciences and their public spiritedness will be tested at that moment. I hope they know what they're going to do. And I hope that thing is the right thing. And I hope that we did the right thing by you today. Hope you enjoyed the show. Come back tomorrow. We'll be talking about Frankenstein, but maybe not the Frankenstein you think you know.